Praise the Lord. I want to say thank the Lord for affinity to this church, for being here, for being a part of this church. Uh, the truth before God, I wake up every Sunday morning looking forward to this. Praise the Lord. I'm going to read from um, Mark 9, 2 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses and one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things and how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they please, as it is written of him. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the chance now to come before your word. And we are mindful, God, that uh, apart from you opening our eyes to see your truth, uh, we would not be able to grasp who you are, and all uh, that you intend for us to hear. So God, we're dependent upon you. We're dependent upon your spirit uh, working in us even now. God, you have been gracious beyond measure uh, in allowing us um, to, to hear from you, to have this, your holy word, before us in our language. God, we, we pray that we would not abuse your grace or take it for granted, but that we would uh, be attentive, be devoted, be be. Um, focused in mind and heart on what you have put before us. God, you have displayed your glory time and time again. And so, God, we pray that even as we have just heard your word read and as we spend now this time um, uh, pondering, uh, exposing your word, God, we pray that your glory would come once more and that you would shine the light of the glory of God through the face of Jesus Christ, and you would shine into our hearts so that we may know you and behold you all the more. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I wonder if you have ever pondered how awesome it would be to hear God's voice audibly. Wouldn't it be cool if God's voice just dropped out of the, uh, you know, spoke through the clouds and got your attention, called you by name maybe even, 
and allowed you to hear directly from Him. Maybe you've even asked for that. Maybe you've, in a time of crisis or a time of struggle or indecision, you said, wouldn't it be nice? God, wouldn't you just speak to me and let me know which way I'm supposed to go or let me know you're there, let me know your presence is with me. If you would just show up right here, if I could just hear you, then I would know everything's going to be okay. As Henry read that part of Mark chapter 9 for us, maybe that's the part that, that kind of grabbed your attention. You heard a voice, the disciples heard a voice audibly from the clouds as they spoke in that moment. I mean, as, as, as God's voice spoke to the disciples there in that moment. Wouldn't it be nice to have been one of the people on that mountain that got to hear God speak? Man, that would be cool, right? Well, one of the people who was there, Peter, he was one of the disciples. He wrote for us a couple letters in the New Testament. First and Second Peter is what we call those letters. And in Second Peter, he talks about this moment. And wouldn't it be cool, if you couldn't be the guy on the mountain, wouldn't it be cool to talk to the guy who was on the mountain? So we get to talk to Peter in the sense that we get to read his letter, and we get to read about him writing about this experience. 2 Peter 1, he, he says this, he says, We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He, speaking of Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to Him from the, majest from the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. So you hear that. Clearly, he's talking about that moment of being up there and hearing the voice of God there with Jesus on that mountain. What's he going to say next? He's talking to you about that moment. Very next verse. Verse 19 of, of 2 Peter 1. And we have the prophetic word. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. You know what the guy said? who was up on the mountain and heard the voice, you've got something even better. That's what he said. Can you believe that? We, we long. Wouldn't it be great to hear the voice of God? Yes, and God's God. He can speak whenever He wants. I will not tell God when He, when he cannot speak. But I can tell you when He has spoken, and we have book upon book of Him speaking. Today we come to God's Word, to Mark chapter 9, as is our regular practice dependent upon God to speak to us, but not asking for something He hasn't already done. We're asking for Him to show us this His holy word. What we need is we, we need to know God. That longing to hear God is really a longing to know God and be known by Him and be in relationship with Him and know that He is with us and that His presence is always there and that He comforts us in our hardships and guides us in the difficult times. That is a good and holy longing and He has met that longing in giving us His Word. We need to know Him and need to know how God relates to us. And He does that through the Scriptures. Which is why we give such a prominent place to this moment in our worship service. Where we are all standing for the reading of Scripture. And we devote a significant amount of time in this hour to the expounding of the Scripture. We believe this is God's Word spoken to us to receive it. Today we're resuming our regular practice of what we call sequential exposition of Scripture. And I know you've all got that you know, in your mind, so I just want to 
pause on that for a second. We believe sermons are, are the, best, the best form of a sermon is it is expositional. And by that we mean my job is to not tell you something out of my own head, but to expose, reveal, show you what's in the Word. The only authority I have is this. It's the same book you've got. Same one I've got, you've got. My job is to expose. That's what expository sermons are exposing to you the Word of God. And we believe that for every message. And so the last couple weeks, we did first on New Year's Day, we did Acts chapter 2. And the last week, we did a passage out of Jeremiah 29. So my job on any given Sunday is to expose, take one passage of Scripture and expose it to you. But we believe, in addition to that on a, on a daily, on a weekly basis, is that the regular habit or practice of our church is we want to practice not just sporadic exposition of Scripture, but sequential exposition of Scripture, because God has given us His Bible, His book, in 66 books. They were written as books. Mark was one, as we'll talk about, he was one of these people who sat down and wrote an account of Jesus' life. And so we want to read those in order. So our regular practice is to take a whole book or sections of a book, just because of time constraints, and say, let's walk straight through this. And so that's where we're going today. My other commitment to you is that if you are a, a regular participant, a regular worshiper at Infinity Church, that over the long haul, you would hear the whole counsel of God's Word. So, for example, if you've been here for you know, a few years, uh, last year we saw, we spent a fair amount of time in some Old Testament passages. And going back before that, we did Judges. Last year we did First and Second Samuel. We spent some time in Proverbs and Psalms. And the Old Testament talks so much about anticipating the Savior, waiting on this Messiah and preparing for a Savior. The Psalms are all uh, they're a songbook, a prayer book, singing about this anticipation of a Savior. One summer we spent a fair amount of time in Proverbs, which, spins, which is our, focusing our hearts on the wisdom of this coming Savior. Yeah, throughout the last few years, we have preached through New Testament letters like Colossians and Titus, and last year in James, where, where our Savior is explained to us and, and given more detail to what His life and doctrine meant. But today, we come back to a gospel account, the Gospel of Mark, where we can encounter the Savior directly. All Scripture is beneficial. All is God-breathed. But these four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give us the Savior's life told to us. And so we come today looking for encountering the Savior Himself. Years ago, we studied uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon, His sermon preached to Matthew. And then back in the fall of 2020, we preached Mark 1 through 8, where we saw this fast-paced account of this miraculous king who is walking on water and feeding thousands and gathering followers and growing in popularity. And Jesus proved himself, as, as Mark 1 through 8 just lays it out in such a fast pattern. He, he lays out this king who is without equal. There is no storm that can stop him. There is no uh, small amount of food that can keep him from feeding the masses. There is no demon that is his equal. Everybody is flocking to him. This is an incredible king. As Mark lays that out in the first eight chapters, it comes to this climax in chapter 8 where Jesus looks at his disciples and says, Who do you think I am? Peter rightly says, You are the Christ, the word Messiah, the anointed one, the one that we've been waiting on for thousands of years. He looks at Jesus and says, You're the guy. I know it. You are the guy. 
Right after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus tells the disciples what's coming at the end of his life. He says, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the religious rulers and die, be crucified, and rise again. Jesus rebuked Peter in a very direct way. The same guy who just said, you are the Christ. Jesus now tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. That's pretty strong words. Peter had a partial understanding of this king who was rising to authority, this king who was without equal, this king who nobody could stop and nobody could uh, come anywhere close to comparing to him. But Peter did not have a category in his mind for a savior who was sovereign over all and yet would voluntarily lay down his life. That was not a category that existed in Peter's mind or really anybody's mind at that point. And so many students of Mark's gospel have noted this hinge point in Mark. Right after Peter confesses he is the Christ, then Jesus' focus now turns, it was all along there, but the the narrative follows as Jesus' focus goes toward the cross. And so we're going to pick back up today in Mark in chapter 9, headed to the end of the Gospel of Mark, which means we are headed to the cross. We we picked this title, I picked this title for this sermon series, The King's Cross, because that's really a summary of the whole book of Mark, but especially this last half. Jesus has proved himself to be the king over all. And yet he's a king unlike any other. He's a king who is headed to the cross. As we start in Mark chapter 9, we are headed that way, headed to the cross. And we will see throughout these chapters that Jesus is going to continue to weave together these two themes in a way that nobody has done before. King and cross, glory and suffering, exaltation and crucifixion. And one of our main questions we want to ask is, how do do these go together? How could these things possibly fit together? How can king and cross be in the same guy? How can crucifixion and exaltation be in the same person? And then we might want to ask, what does that mean for our suffering and our longing for glory? As we jump back into Mark chapter 9, we get one of the most glorious moments in Jesus' earthly ministry. Imagine being able to go back to any moment in Jesus' life. It would have been pretty incredible to see him take a little boy's lunch with five loaves and two fish and feed thousands and thousands of people, right? That would have been pretty amazing. It would have been pretty amazing to watch a, a blind man call out and Jesus heal him. It would have been amazing to watch a storm that's raging and Jesus come walk across the water and then the storm stop. All those things would have been amazing. But surely this one has to be pretty close to the top of the list because of how visually just remarkable this moment would have been. We just heard in, in Mark chapter 9 that Jesus has invited three of his disciples up on the mountain, and when they get there, they see something glorious, spectacular, a, a, a remarkable vision of Jesus. So my first invitation to you this morning is the same invitation he gave to those first disciples, and that's this, I want you to see Jesus. I invite you to see Jesus. Mark 9, 2, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. This is a scene that is almost impossible to put into words. 
it, it, there's no, no words to really grasp how, how, what all is going on here, but we can do our best to try to understand what Mark was communicating. The best we, we know of Mark is that Mark was pretty close with the Apostle Peter in the book of Acts. So uh, historians and some of the early church fathers point to, to Mark and say, Mark, the where he got Jesus' story is that he wrote down what Peter told him. So many times going through Mark, it looks like this is Peter's vantage point on Jesus' life, though Mark is the one writing it down. And so as Peter remembers this moment and Mark writes down his words, he, he's, he's grasping for something to try to describe what it was like for this light and glory and majesty to be happening before him. He says that the, the Jesus' clothes were white, but not just like regular old white. They were like radiant and intensely white. What does intensely white look like? Isn't white just white? No, it's intensely white. He says it's beyond any kind of like washing or bleaching or highlight. You, you couldn't make something as white as his robes were. And then he says of Jesus, or right before that, he says of Jesus himself, that he is transfigured. Now, that's not a word we use very often. In fact, in the New Testament, when this word is used elsewhere, the translators in English just pick the word transformed. That's a more normal word, and that's what the word means, to change form in some way. But it's almost like all of our English translators have tried to say, there's, there's more going on here than just a, a slight change. And so they pick a unique word, transfigured. And so now it's become in English, this is about the only thing we ever talk about being transfigured, the transfiguration of Jesus. He changes form in some way that is unique and glory and spectacular. What was, what was going on in that moment? What, what, was, what did Jesus look like? Well, we can kind of get an idea if we, we consider who Jesus was. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Jesus had an earthly birthday, but that's not when the Son of God became, came into existence. Jesus has always existed. There has never been a time where Jesus was not. There has always been an eternal Father, always been an eternal Son, always been an eternal Holy Spirit. And so Jesus, when He came to earth, was, was cloaked in a way. He, was, he put on, He took on human flesh. Philippians 2 describes Jesus this way. He said, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So when Jesus came to earth, He, he gave up. He emptied Himself of certain privileges and rights that He had had from the beginning of time, from before the beginning of time. And one of those was that Jesus looked spectacular. If you and I could have gone and seen Jesus before the creation of the world, which is, I know, just like a hypothetical that doesn't even make sense, but you would have been blown away. Jesus, before all eternity, it had all glory. And yet, so that we could get to know Him, Jesus chose to veil that in a certain way so that when the people in the first century world saw Jesus, he looked like a regular dude. In fact, if Jesus walked in today, he, he probably would not have really captured your attention. He just looked normal. He just looked like a regular person. The Christmas song we sing says, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. So Jesus is fully God, and yet He has been veiled in flesh. His glory is, is held back so that people could experience Him and relate to Him as a man. But for this one moment on the mountain, this transfiguration moment, that veil is taken back and Jesus' glory is shown. 
Peter, James, and John get to see him as he has been from before the world was created. But that's not all. Jesus veiled himself in flesh, but that glory would return. After he died and resurrected and ascended back to be with the Father, he took back on that glory. And he now has that glory. If you and I were to see Jesus now in his resurrected and ascended body, just like we had, if we had seen him before the foundation of the world, we'd be overwhelmed. It'd be a glory we could hardly stand to bear. But that's not all. Jesus has promised he is coming back. And when he comes back, do you know how he's going to come? In glory. He's going to come in majesty and in splendor. When Jesus came the first time, he came humble, a child born in a manger, so that you and I could relate to him. We could know what God is like. We could spend time. We could understand what God in flesh means and, and get to know him. When he comes back, every knee, not just some, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. There will be nobody who stands in front of God's glory and says, no, no, I don't want that. Every knee will bow. When Jesus stand, stood there on the mountain, Peter, James, and John just got a little glimpse of what that's like. Jesus' glory was put on display so they could see who Jesus really is. Peter had confessed him as the Christ. He knew he was the Messiah, but he's still getting a, a, an understanding of what that really means. And in this moment, their understanding grew quite a bit. Imagine for a moment what it would have been like to be Peter or James or John standing on that mountain that day. I, if I could imagine what it was like, I, I would imagine it's a little like standing outside at high noon and staring at the sun, only way brighter. I could imagine that it's a little like coming inside on a, on a cold winter night and standing in front of a fireplace where there is a roaring fire. Only way warmer than that. I, I could imagine that it's a little like being in the stadium for the championship game of your favorite team at the moment where they score the winning goal or touchdown or run and the place is going crazy, only it is more joyous than that. I could imagine that it's a little like hiking up a high, high mountain and coming to a section where the only path is a, a little little narrow pass where you've got to slide sideways. And in front of your toes is a, is a steep cliff that drops off for hundreds of feet, and yet way more terrifying than that. The glory, the majesty, the splendor, the joy, the warmth, the brightness, the sheer terror of that moment. Just imagine what it was like to see some combination far more amazing than you and I could put words to, but before you on the mountain. That's what Jesus showed to his disciples. I imagine for the disciples, even though they had seen some amazing miracles and they had seen some pretty incredible things, that it, it had been tempting at least to start to take him for granted because he just looked like a regular dude. He looked like an average guy. And so as he did one more miracle, they, they stand in awe, but but he's still the same guy who eats the same meals you do and sleeps where, where everybody sleeps and does all the things we do. And it'd be easy to start just to kind of say, you know, well, yeah, I've been hanging out with Jesus for a few years now and I like him more than I like, you know, the other guys, but he's just a regular guy. If they were tempted that way, as you and I might be tempted, they, they got a wake-up call that day. This is no average guy. 
This is the Son of God. He is majestic. He is glorious. He is terrifying. He is warm. He is holy. He is amazing. He is Jesus, and He is worthy of your worship. He is worthy of your worship. If you can see Jesus as He is with eyes of faith, then you will worship Him. In the end, all will see, all will bow down, all will acknowledge. But if you have eyes of faith to see now, the way you know you're seeing Him right is you bow down and worship Him. Can you see Jesus that way? We read of other places in the Bible where angels have this, the, the, the other places where these bleached white robes is described, they're described like angels. Angels come this way. And most of the time when angels show up, and whether their, their robes are described as white or just light or something, you know what people always do? They're always afraid. And sometimes they even fall down and worship the angels. And when that happens, the angels, they always say, don't be afraid. But then they also say, don't worship me. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not the one to be worshipped. You know what Jesus doesn't say? He doesn't say, don't be afraid. And he doesn't say, don't worship me. Because both of them were right. Both of those things were right responses. To help the disciples begin to grasp what, what was going on in this moment, two Old Testament figures, Old Testament heroes, show up and speak with Jesus, Elijah and Moses. And the most likely reason these are the two people that show up is that, it, you know, because it could have been, you know, Abraham and Isaiah, right? But why was it Moses and Elijah? Well, Elijah is mentioned first, and in Malachi 4, 5, there's a prophecy about how, how Elijah would come before the awesome day of the Lord. The day of the Lord being when Christ, when, when the Messiah comes and the Lord returns. So this, this picture of Elijah is a, is a forerunner, somebody who goes before the coming of the Messiah. So when they see Elijah, they're thinking, this affirms the Messiah is here. Similarly with Moses, in Malachi 4, 4, right before the prophecy about Elijah, Moses is mentioned, but Moses had also said in Deuteronomy 18, 15, that there would, he prophesied about how the Lord would raise up another prophet like him that the people will listen to. So both Elijah and Moses are, are people who were prophets, who were leaders, who spoke about there's one that's greater who's going to come. So these men serve as a way of saying, this is truly him. This is the one you've been waiting for. He is truly the Messiah. He's truly the anointed one. He is truly the Savior of the world. That's what Moses and Elijah's presence was telling the people, tell, telling the disciples. So let me ask you, do you see him that way? Do you have eyes to see Jesus that way, that he is the anointed Savior of the world? Can you see Jesus for truly who He is? Not who you want Him to be. Not who your neighbor says He is or somebody on TV says He is or somebody you just heard somebody say this about Him. But do you see Him as He truly is? Do you have eyes of faith? Have your eyes been opened? Have the scales been removed from your eyes by the Lord? Has your heart been opened? Has your life been transformed so that you can see Jesus as He truly is? In some ways, there are parts of Jesus or versions of Jesus that are actually pretty popular in our world. People like that Jesus was a good moral teacher. People in our world like that Jesus had, did some pretty you know, kind and compassionate and generous things. They like that he, he tells interesting parables and stories. The, a lot of the world appreciates a lot of the, the good and moral wholesome things about Jesus. Jesus is all of those things, of course, but more than that. Some of the things that Jesus said and did weren't quite as popular. For example, in, in, in verse 9 and verse 12 and dozens of times in Mark, 
Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And sometimes we come to that phrase and say, oh, he's talking about how he's God and man. And that's true, but that's probably not the reference Jesus was thinking of. When Jesus called himself the Son of Man, he is quoting Daniel 7, chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. And this is what we read about the Son of Man there. It says that this Son of Man, somebody who looks like a man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one shall that, that shall not be destroyed. So when you read Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man, he is saying he is ruler over all peoples. And I tell you, that's not very popular. People don't like that kind of exclusivity for Jesus to claim. Jesus is saying there is only one ruler. And Jesus is saying he is that guy. He is the one who is ruling over all. Do you see Jesus as he truly is? Do you see him as he claims to be? And if you have eyes of faith that believe in him, you'll respond in worship. See him as he is. Believe in him as he says he is so that you can worship him. Did you know that you are a theologian? Do you like that title? Everybody is a theologian because everybody has beliefs about God. A theologian is just somebody who has a belief about God. doesn't mean it's a good belief or a bad belief. A theologian is just somebody who believes something about God, and just about everybody believes something about God, whether that's just that He doesn't exist or that He is the God of the Bible. You believe something about God. So when I ask you about do you see Jesus, what I'm also asking you is how's your theology of Jesus? How is your understanding, your, your comprehension? What do you know about Jesus? Do you see Him as He is? Are you a good theologian? Are you a biblical theologian? Or are you a bad theologian? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you see Him as He is? So many parts of this story of Jesus' transfiguration remind us of, a, of another account that happened kind of similar to this in the Old Testament. It's the time when Moses went up on the mount in Mount Sinai to receive the law from God. And there's so many overlaps here that it's clear that when Jesus was doing this, he, he was getting people to remember that moment back in Moses. For example, both of them happen high on a mountain. Both of them fill others with fear. Everybody's terrified at what's going on because it's so overwhelming. In both cases, there is a cloud. Both cases, there is a voice from heaven. Moses is in both of them. So as we read Jesus' encounter with God at the Mount of Transfiguration, we're supposed to remember back to Exodus as Moses was up on a mountain. But if we do go back and look at that story, we'll notice one important difference. It's similar, but very different. In Exodus, Moses' face was glowing. It was shining. So much so that the people asked him to put a veil over it. You're like, hey, that's too much. That's too much. For some of us, we put a veil over our face for other reasons. It's not because it's too pretty. You know what I mean? But No, Moses had this bright and shining face. And people veil, they wanted to veil it because it was just too overwhelming. Do you know how Moses got that, that glory? It's because he was reflecting God's glory to others. He had met with Jesus and it was so intense that it, it, it shined off of him. He was beaming with God's glory. Now that is similar to what happens in Mark chapter 9, but the source of the glory is different. Jesus is also radiant. Jesus is also beaming, so much so that it is overwhelming. But do you know the source of it? 
It's not somewhere else. Jesus is the glory. Moses was like the moon that reflects the light of the sun. Jesus is like the sun himself. He reflects, he doesn't reflect, he radiates the glory of God. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Can you see him? Can you see the glory of the Son of God, who is the Son, uh, is the Son of Man, who is the, the, the only, only Savior of the world? If so, you will worship Him. Peter, in classic Peter form, doesn't quite understand what's going on. One of the reasons we, we think that Peter was the one telling Mark what was, how this story went is that Peter is very self-deprecating in Mark's God. He notices all the places he messes up. Here's one of them. Mark even comments. What he said, he didn't, even, he didn't know what to say. They were terrified. What do you say in a moment like that? Nothing, Peter. That's, you should just, just be silent, you know. But he had to say something. And so he offered to build tents, three of them, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. Now, it's hard to, to guess completely at Peter's motivation for doing that. Uh, he has no reason to think that Moses and Elijah are about to leave. So some people think they're trying to capture him, you know, keep him there. But we, I, think, I think probably Peter was just a practical guy fumbling for something to say and was trying to do something helpful in this moment. To give these guys a place to, to rest or something. I don't know. But what we do know is that after the voice comes and the, the cloud and the voice come, my, Elijah and Moses disappear. And it's probably a rebuke to Peter that Peter had said, three people, three tents, here we go, you know. God makes it clear to Peter, this is not like three of them, you just pick your favorite guy. You team Moses, I'll be team Elijah, I'll be team, you know. There's just one. It's Jesus. He is unique. These guys were here to serve Jesus, to point to Jesus, and now their time is done and they can disappear. It's all about Jesus. Verse 7 describes the cloud overshadowing them. And God's voice says this, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. This is the second time in Mark's Gospel that a voice has called out from heaven. The first time was in Mark chapter 1 at Jesus' baptism, and it sounds very similar. God there spoke directly to Jesus, and He said, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Here in Mark 9, he's not, He doesn't speak to Jesus. He speaks about Jesus, and He says, This is my beloved Son. So he's saying, this guy is far greater than Moses and Elijah, as great as they were. This is my unique, one and only begotten son. But it's interesting, the second thing Jesus said. Because everything to this point has been visual, has it not? There's been radiance, there's been white, there's been clouds. But now, as God's voice speaks, the first audible thing, the second, the, what, the second line that God says about Jesus is he says, not look at him, but listen, listen to him. So I want to invite you, if you can see Jesus accurately today, I invite you to listen to Jesus. If we're going to see him for who he is, we have to listen to what he says. And that is really hard in our world today because there's a lot of voices out there, isn't there? Whether it be the Voices on your radio broad, broadcast, the TV news analysts, celebrities, YouTube preachers, TikTok experts on everything, trending posts on social media. There are countless voices out there, mother-in-laws, teenagers. Everybody's got something to say. Of all those voices, which one are you listening to? Are you listening to the voice of Jesus? One of the ways you might know that you are 
listening to the voice of Jesus is that sometimes it catches us off guard like it did for the disciples. On the way down the mountain, surely they've got hundreds of questions, right? I mean, where would you even begin to ask Jesus what just happened, right? But as their mind is spinning, Jesus adds one more thing. He tells them something, and they should be paying attention. God just said, listen, so listen, right? Jesus said, don't tell anybody what you've seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Well, that just added way more questions than answers, (laughs) They, they didn't have a category for this. They didn't have the end of Mark's gospel for us to read like we do, to figure out what was going on. So they've got more questions. And this is, this is the, the ninth time Mark records Jesus telling people, don't say anything, which seems so backwards. You're confused. You're like, wait, wait, wait. I thought the goal was to go and, it's right there. Yeah. Go into the world. Preach the God. I thought we were supposed to go and tell. And yet here's Jesus saying, don't tell. Hold on to this. Why would Jesus tell them not to tell? It's because they didn't have the full story yet. They had seen this king. They had seen him feed the, 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 the multitudes. They had seen him walk on water, cast out demons, heal the sick. But they hadn't seen him crucified and resurrected. And so they didn't have the full story. They knew the king, but they didn't know the cross. And so Jesus says, wait, because you're going to tell only part of the story, and a half-truth is a lie. So don't, you don't get it yet. You don't understand it well enough to tell this story. Verse 10 shows the disciples very confused by what Jesus said, that he would rise from the dead. But they, they knew something about resurrection in times, so they ask a timing question. They say, wait, don't the scribes say something about Elijah coming back? So they ask about him. they just seen him. And Jesus tells them, yes, Elijah has come. And he's referring to John the Baptist, who was beheaded by King Herod. And so Jesus tells them the only thing left in God's timing is for the Messiah to die and to rise again. Disciples had a hard time listening to that message. They, they had begun to grasp that he was an authority, that he was king. They didn't want to see him die. They couldn't understand that he must die and rise again in order to show who he is. The first century Jewish world had an idea of resurrection, but that was like the end times. They didn't have an idea of Jesus, somebody on earth, dying and rising again. So Peter had rebuked Jesus before when, when Jesus had said he was going to die. Peter had no category for this. So when God spoke audibly from heaven and told the disciples to listen to Jesus, part of what they needed to hear is the same thing that we need to hear. That Jesus came to show both glory and suffering. And one of the most challenging things about this is this this category, it best shows God's glory. God, God decided in His infinite wisdom, the best way to show you His glory is for Him to suffer and to die on a cross. Jesus wanted his disciples to see his incredible glory that day on the mountain of transfiguration. But he says, wait, 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 don't go tell anybody yet because you're going to miss the part of the story that matters most. As glorious as that mountain was, there's another mountain coming in a few chapters called Golgotha. And as glorious as you saw Jesus there, it's going to get even better later on. You're going to see his glory, but it's not going to be a radiant. It's not going to be a beaming. It's not going to be a a way that looks like inspiring. It's going to look horrible. It's going to be gut-wrenching. It's going to be terrifying. And yet when you know the meaning of the cross, it's the greatest display of God's glory ever. God showed his glory on the mountain of transfiguration 
But if they can listen to, the, to Jesus, if the disciples can hear his message and hear his purpose and hear what he came to do, then there's an even greater glory for them to experience. It's the glory of a Savior who came to die not for his friends, because they all rejected him. They were all his enemies, and yet he died anyway for them. The greatest display of God's glory is a Savior who is willing to die for people who hated him. And he came to save people like us, people who had rejected him. Jesus is not what anybody, who, anybody there had expected or anticipated. They wanted a king to come and overthrow Rome. Jesus was after a much bigger villain, death and sin for all of eternity. Jesus proved that. This same Jesus who was transfigured on the mountain and his glory was shown, proved that with the same kind of radiance and glory when he resurrected from the tomb on the third day. He showed that he is king, yes, but not just king over this mountain, over Moses or Elijah or Rome or Israel, but king over all dominions, all authority, all people. Do you have eyes to see? Do you have ears to hear? Can you see Jesus for who he is? The good news is if you can, something amazing happens to you. Jesus tells us to see him, to listen to him, and the more you do that, the more you become like him. My third and final invitation for you today is to become like Jesus. Become like Jesus. If you really see Jesus for who he is, if you really listen to his message, then something happens to you. You get transformed. The same word used for transformed or transfigured in Mark chapter 9 is used in 2 Corinthians 3.18 when we read this. And we all, us, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Here's the good news. What Jesus did isn't just in a history book far, far away. What Jesus did, when you see it, when you behold it, when you savor it, it changes you. You become glorious. Not on your own merit, of course, but by beholding and savoring and treasuring Jesus, it changes your life. The world is trying to fill you, especially in January, with so many self-help and good habits and good responsibilities, and those can be all fine and dandy. But you want to know how your life gets changed? You behold the glory of God. You spend time with your Savior. You marinate in His Scripture. You comprehend His greatness and His majesty. And the more you, be, you behold Him, the more you become like Him. See your Savior, listen to your Savior, and you will become like your Savior. Aaron had, I had not given, Aaron and I meet on Fridays. We, he had no idea where I, was, where I was preaching Sunday. Thursday night, he sends me a picture of one page out of a 700-page book that, uh, of Providence by John Piper. And this was on that page. Can't make these kind of things up, you know? Um, here's what P Piper quotes that verse. I just quoted you. 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says this, The clearer and fuller our sight of Christ's glory, the more we will be transformed into His likeness. This is where the seeing and savoring the glory of Christ leads, even now in this life. Beholding leads to becoming. Focused regarding of Christ leads to faithfully reflecting Christ. Wow. There it is. When you behold Christ, it changes you. 
It changes you. When your eyes are opened, when your ears are opened, when you spend time with your Savior, it changes you. And the best part of this is that if you, if you know Jesus, that transformation process is guaranteed. You know why? Because in the end, you will see Him fully. And when you see Him fully, you will be fully transformed. 1 John 3, 2, we read, When He appears, Jesus, when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we will be like Him, because we, will see, we shall see Him as He is. The better we behold Jesus, the more we will become like Jesus. One last thing I can't help but share. One last thing. You know what's weird about the transfiguration? That Peter, James, and John lived to tell you about it. Isn't that weird? Everybody else up to this moment, when they, if they had come close to the glory of God, they'd have died. People who just touched the Ark of the Covenant died. How did Peter, James, and John survive this moment? Exodus 33, 20, God had said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. How did they survive? The cross. The only way Peter, James, and John survived that moment is that Jesus in all of his infinite wisdom, he already knew where he was going. He's the mediator between God and man. He had made a way for us to see God's glory and not die. Only possible in Christ. And if you don't die from it, it makes you, it transforms you. It makes you more like Jesus. See your Savior today. Listen to your Savior today. To be devoted to Him, focus on Him, spend time in the Word of God. And if you'll do that, He'll transform your life. Let's pray. Father, You are abundantly gracious to us. Father, we, we confess that we do not deserve Your presence with us. We do not deserve Your glory to be put on display. And yet, time and time again, God, You are so patient with us and so diligent to continue to display Your majesty and Your splendor for all to see. Father, forgive us when we run from You, when we neglect You, when we don't spend time with You, and we treat You as if You're not worthy of our time. But God, we count it a great grace and a great privilege that we've been able to gather right here today. God, we pray that, that you've opened our eyes, that you've given us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to behold your majesty. And God, to whatever small degree that we've been able to do that, we trust that you are at work in our hearts, our hearts to transform us, to shape us, to mold us, and to make us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We're dependent upon you for all things. And we trust in you today. Grow our faith. Forgive our unbelief. And may we follow you today with whole hearts. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.